I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. How you feeling? Last episode of season two. This is crazy. I'm feeling, I, I have complicated feelings. Yeah. Like we, well, we've gotten this far. Them. What? I said we've gotten so far. You've gotten so far. Yeah. Tell me about your complicated feelings. Uh. Well, first, this is a longer episode and yeah. every sentence of it is interesting. And I want to talk about, I was like, we literally need to go line by line. Seriously, I have five pages of notes this time. Most of it is just quotes that I copied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I started to take detailed notes and I was just like, oh, all I'm doing is writing out the script. So, so yes. there's that. I was also, so we may need to do a double episode. We might, it might have to, we'll see. But we may, I was wondering, I don't know. I was re-listening to our last podcast and I was like, how much do we want to change the format here? But it did occur to me that we could consider a, like a bonus end of the season look back episode you know like yes. i don't know because i one thing i really value from your point of view is like you see the arcs you see the patterns uh across oh, the season so um maybe you can help me cohere it but anyway th that, that's why yeah. how are you feeling we've well, made it have... 22 episodes 22 episodes i know it's pretty amazing i actually was thinking the exact same thing though about yeah doing one a different kind of episode that would, you know, wrap things, wrap things up. Yeah. Make some connections across the season. I think that would be fun. So I do, I think we should do that. Yeah. I like that. We could also do a little research. Maybe we never do any research. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We could do some research. Although, yeah, you know, we, and do you mean research about the office itself or do you mean contextual research? I mean, both. I mean, we do do some contextual research. I was looking some stuff up for this episode, but yeah. I, while I was researching this episode, I came across some details about the production of it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. But I was like, yeah. is that the kind of podcast we are? Like, you know, are we a podcast that's going to talk about the production history or something like that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I would say typically hard no. We're not. <laughs> I think that that's something we can do in our side episode. Okay. All right. I like For this. For some reason, I have this problem <laughs> like I don't want to know about their intent I don't want to know about the process I don't want to think about the fact that they are actors outside of this world I'm like very in it but for a special episode I'd be very open to that okay okay cool yeah you have any revisions and regrets from the last episode you know, not really. I have something actually, I was going to say I had sort of one, but I think that this is more for, res wait, what was it you called our new segment? Weekly receptionist. Yes. The weekly receptionist. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I have one thing that almost combines the two of those because this was a, an omission or kind of a miss in one episode, Okay. but they came in. We're uh, hearing again from Greased Weasel. Really? Wrote back. Yeah. This is on Instagram. Did Greased Weasel listen to the new episode and then write this? Or is this before? This one, yeah, this one is following not the very most recent, but drug testing. Then Greased Weasel is going to be really excited when they <laughs> find out like they're central to the podcast. Now, I hope. 
totally. I hope so. <laughs> um, so this was at the end or at some point in that episode, we were trying to figure out when the other time was that Michael said he'd been testing Dwight and then gave him sort of a special position yeah, that's right. on that basis. So this is the note. In today's podcast, you were trying to remember which episode of The Office Michael told Dwight in the boardroom that he had been testing him. It was season two, episode six, The Fight. Nice. So, you know, after Michael had kind of embarrassed him. Um, and uh, so that was our missing. Okay. That was our missing detail. Have you responded? Have you said, hey, thanks so much or something? Or are you? Yes. Uh... Okay. Yes, I have. And this, this one was on actually the comments on Instagram. I want to read the rest of it because it's got a little more of a reading of Dwight. Okay. So it goes from there. It says, um, having watched and rewatched The Office so many times, it's odd how my perspective has changed. Now I see The Office as Dwight's story, even a love story. And I envy him and his ability to remain so enthusiastic and committed about the many aspects of his life. Martial arts, Battlestar Galactica, Angela, even a mundane activity like selling paper to name but a few. I worked in intelligence and was good at my job, but even on my best day, I couldn't muster the sort of passion for most things that Dwight seems to have for everything, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, yes, I know it's not real, but forget Pam and Jim, it's DKS for the win. <laughs> oh my God. This is the kind of viewership I'm here for, the, the counterintuitive reading of the show, you know? Yes, a beautiful reading of Dwight Kurt Schrute's love story. Also, I like that this is, you know, what I'm liking about this is a, for everybody else who's wanted to write in but hasn't, uh, Grease Weasel is a good model for you because <laughs> I'm, what I'm enjoying about their comments is uh, not, they're not writing in and being like, you fucking idiots. How could you not know it was season two, episode six, the fight at minute 15 or whatever? You know, they're like, you know, you're the experts and and we're just, you know, we're unpacking things. We're analyzing. You know, I I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying the uh, the idea that the listeners are in it with us. You know. Yeah, totally. Because it can it shows us things that we missed, but in a supportive tone. Supportive tone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Should you tell us again the email since we have a new email yes. account? Uh, well, I would just say before we get into that, uh, I have I thought I was going to have revisions in. Oh report. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there, I don't know if you ever do this where you, we finish recording and you think, oh my God, like, what did I say? I sounded like an idiot or something. Like, I don't know. Or, oh my God, that was really bad or whatever. And I listened it back and I was like, oh no, that's fine. I'm good with this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I was kind of like regretting our little game. I was like, that was a really bad uh, breaking of format. And then listening to it, I was like, no, that oh. was fun. That was a good time. It was delightful. Actually, I thought about making a game for you for this episode, but I failed. But when I listened to that back and I loved it and really enjoyed it. And I, then I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said, you know, whatever I said about that commenter. And then I listened to it again and I was like, no, nah, I feel pretty good about that too. I was like, no yeah. regrets. I feel, I feel good about that too. And it is, has actually led me to go back on what I thought about like. So I said like too much. Then I reeled it back. But now I got to say, I'm rethinking it because I find myself then saying kind of instead. Mm. What I've realized is that like, it can be used just as an empty filler for sure. And it can be excessive, but also it's a qualifier. You know, yes. it makes something yes. not complete. Yes. And I think a lot of times 
we just need qualifiers. You know, yep. you don't want to state things as if they are total and complete and entirely definitive. So Agreed. I think I want to make an argument for the intellectual strength of like. Oh, hell yeah. We just bring it back. articles and essays and books coming right out of this show or, you know, but uh, that is like an academic hazard, right? It's like your pleasure becomes your work or whatever. Like now <laughs> yeah. we're gonna, um, but I, I really like that idea, of course, because as I listen back, I'm just like, oh, wow, I say that word all the time. But also, not for nothing, um, this ain't a fucking lecture or whatever. Like, and if we're silent, I, like for me, I often find that those transitional words or qualifiers or whatever are partly to fill the air while I figure out my thoughts, you know? And yes. Yes. It would not be entertaining for listeners to listen to crickets. Um, <laughs> although we could try it. Uh, okay. So the for those of you that would like to reach out to us either on social media or via email, you can do so. Uh, so on Instagram, we are office underscore hours underscore podcast. On Twitter, and I tweeted like a bunch today because uh, I feel bad that I hadn't been tweeting. We are office underscore HRS underscore pod. But if you want to cut right to it and send us an email, uh, then you can email us at the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. And we have an email. Yes. Shall we discuss it? Yeah, let's discuss it. Okay. I'm going to put the text of it in the chat just so you can okay. refer to it, but I will read it uh, for listeners. Uh, the email was titled Grievances, uh, <laughs> which. I mean, on the one hand, I like that because, you know, it's sort of a HR language, you know, it's it <laughs> goes with the office. On the other hand, you know, I, as I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, did we offend somebody, you know, and it turns out we did. So the first bullet point here is how is it possible? Should I read the name or not? Do, what, what, Maybe what? just first name. OK, so this is from Stephanie and Stephanie. Who is my in, sister? <laughs> so your sister coming in hot says, how is it possible? <laughs> neither of you knew if Jen and Brad were married. Now, first reading that, I was like, what the hell is she talking about? And I was like, oh, right, Jen. Nothing to do with your office, but it kind of does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. While I did appreciate the research shared in the next episode, I found this shameful. And oh. to be honest, an, an embarrassment to our generation. Wow. Outside of Rose and Jack, uh, this was the single most influential relationship and breakup of our time. Wow. Is that true, uh, that it was the single most influential relationship? I'm trying to think of something. That's, more. A good, that's a good question. I mean, I agree that Rose and Jack from Titanic are definitely the most. Yes, yes. <laughs> they take yes. top for most influential. But yeah, what do you think about placing Brad and Jen in that? Just, it to me a lot hinges on Stephanie's use of the word influential here. I'm curious what that, <laughs> in what sense Brad and Jen influenced everybody else, like in in so far as they were a topic of endless water cooler discussion or reading magazines at the hair salon. Sure, but uh, were they a model? Were they hashtag goals? Like I don't know. It's a good question. But I did, I, I did, I don't even know if we talked about the fact that they were married. Did we know, did I know that? We, we did not know that for okay. sure. I, I think that Stephanie's I said, right. Stephanie's right. And I did follow up and clarify. They were married 
for some period of time that I'm now forgetting, but um, we did follow up on that. But I think as we started to talk about it, <laughs> because <laughs> there's that reference and it's when, as a reminder, it's when Dwight says, <laughs> he's talking about the accident on the highway and people ask who was hurt and he's yeah. just So that's what got us into this thing. And I wanted to talk about Jen and Brad Pitt, but then I quickly realized that my memory was too fuzzy. So I think it was one of those where I was like, I think they were married. Were they married? I don't know. And I mean, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it to Steph. I should have known. Yeah. I feel, I feel embarrassed. And I think uh, her grievance is, is correct. Yeah. Um, but it, I, but they it also leaves They me don't end there. How can I offer reparations? How can we move forward? I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do. She doesn't really give us a roadmap for that. But right. anyway, <laughs> bullet number two, do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? You read it. Keep going. Okay. All right. Our family has a legitimate problem with house temperatures. <laughs> Megan and Dan border on dangerous. Thank you for recognizing this. Uh, okay. So is this a family like inheritance? Uh, does everybody it's a family inheritance? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a family inheritance. It's about, um, <laughs> I remember actually. So yeah, I think we're pretty, <laughs> feeling pretty conservative on spending money on, uh, making the house comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> or just spending unnecessary money and resources. I sometimes think I should make it as if it is really just an environmental cause, but that's just not true. Mm -hmm. But I remember too, if I would leave one room and go into another room and leave the light on, my dad had this big thing to always send me back to turn the light off. I see. So now actually, even in my own office, I really am the Oscar Although I guess he's turning up air conditioning, but this feels like an Oscar move. At my office, I will go around and turn off extra lights that are on. Oh like, nobody's over here. We just do not need this light on in the copy room. <laughs> this is a waste of resources. So I stand, I stand by it. <laughs> you're sort of like um Batman, but <laughs> of you're like a superhero whose entire goal is just to save uh the heating bill or the electric bill yeah it's but, a, but for you it is not about climate change it's like a moral <laughs> it's more like a or, or like can like a like a survivalist mentality how low can you go how cold can you be yes yes it is that i mean i'm definitely gonna call it call it a climate change cause although uh also me turning off the copy room light is definitely real for you to frame it as a superhero, it is the lowest change-making <laughs> that I could possibly come up with. But you do start to kind of compete with yourself. You do start to see, yeah, how low can I go? Yeah, so that's a thing that I wish that I had in my life. I do not have the capacity to challenge myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in that area, but I think you clearly have it in other areas. I suppose. I I, I just like... I will often be like, yeah, like, let's see if I can avoid eating the Cheetos. And then it's like, ah, oh, fuck it. What? I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, I guess I have no self-control or willpower whatsoever. So the idea of being, you know, even just slightly uncomfortable for more than, you know, a few minutes. So like last night we came home and it was a little cold. It was midnight, by the way. And so we're, and we're like super tired. And Do not tell me you already turned on the heat, Tyler. <laughs> oh, no. Well, so Jen was like, do you want me to turn the heat on? And I was like, I am cold. Tyler. Uh, and I said, I was like, but I was like, 
Um, now I'm saying like a lot. <laughs> uh, I said, um, this is a pro like on the space heater. Why don't we turn on the space heater? Okay. And uh, and Jen was like, I think I'm gonna turn it up in the whole house. <laughs> and it's because she doesn't like how hot it gets with the space heater. She wants that. Yeah, it's not for even. But I definitely said in the okay, like I'm in bed, I'm all toasty. I got, you know, I was like, I had sweatpants and a sweatshirt and socks on. I was so cold, right? And I was like, ah, Megan would be so mad at us. <laughs> I just want you to know, like, that's how much your standards have, like, you know, seeped into my, um, my brain. So I've become your house temperature super ego. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I do not feel good about being that person, but I will say that strikes me as a personal weakness, Tyler. <laughs> On my end, that it, that it your end. yeah, all right. I I have bad circulation, maybe I don't know. Um. Anyway, I feel like I we can't go on with the podcast because not only does well Stephanie seems to agree with me, but just seeing how little respect you have for me now in your eyes is pretty upsetting. <laughs> but it's only in this one category. All right, fair enough. You well, can maintain then... a friendship with a radically different views about house temperature. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll find out. Uh, this podcast might be the documentation of the end of our friendship. <laughs> okay, so then the third bullet point from Stephanie, and this is calling me out, says, Tyler, you start watching The Bachelor at mid-season, if I heard correctly. While I passionately despise the first three episodes, give or take, which suggests, by the way, that Stephanie might despise more than the first three, but whatever. I would argue they are a that they are a necessary evil. Skipping them feels short-sighted and discredits <laughs> the journey. Um, well, I think first wow. I, I think short-sighted sounds about right for me. Uh anyway. And then secondly, what's your take on this, Megan? Because you're a you're an aficionado of The Bachelor as well. Do you mm -hmm. have I have I discredited the journey? Well, oh, shit. I'm not, I'll say I'm not personally offended by you skipping the first three episodes. So I think that I have a more moderate position on this. I do think Stephanie's right. I think she puts it really well calling them a necessary evil. <laughs> you do need, you do need a starting place. And it's a, it's a slow start. It's a very, uh, what do you call a hill? I want to say shut. What do you call a hill that's not steep? It's not shallow. Like what's, I don't know what the word is for that, but whatever. It's it's a not steep hill. All it's a very gradual grave. That's let's, what I'm thinking. <laughs> let's say it's a very gradual incline okay. as it picks up speed. So I agree, necessary evil. I don't know that it makes you I don't know, intellectually or morally limited though, to not watch them. Wow. So, so I'm going to take a more moderate, more moderate view on this. So I think this is going to be the last receptionist's uh, corner or whatever we call this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is brutal. We bring back Grace Weasel. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> Thanks for your message, Stephanie. And we look forward to more. Um, I have a text message from my friend, Corey. Okay. Who, it's not posed as a question, but it is specifically for you. Um, but she was listening to the podcast and was just like, she said she was live tweeting the episode, um, but she said she wants to meet you and discuss baseball players, short pants and the <laughs> Cubs and the Cubs and hot dogs at the Cubs. 
And Corey agrees it is the ankles for me. Although I can't remember. I actually don't remember what we said. Were you saying it's not the ankles or it is the ankles? I, I wasn't sure. I thought it was yeah. an ephemeral quality that I couldn't couldn't capture with words. But for Corey, it's a hard yes to yeah. ankles. Hard yes to ankles. Okay. Okay. I love this. So Tia, do you have any comments that you want to share on short pants, cubs, or hot dogs? <laughs> so Corey also, you're saying big, big fan of the ankle pants. I love that. I really, really appreciate it. I would love to talk to Corey directly so we could have a conversation about it. I feel like I've pretty much laid my perspective out there and there might not be much more, much more depth to, uh, to dig into. Hot dogs at the Cubs though. Do you like a hot dog at the Cubs? Oh, I do. I like, yes. I mean, for me, hot dog at a game is definitely a highlight. I will get more than one. I do strategically decide when I'm going to order it. So I do not do it right away. Mm. You know, you gotta, gotta sit for a while, pass some time, look at the, look at the outfits, evaluate the fashion. And then you go in for hot dog number one, and then you give it a couple more innings. So that is that, wait, what was the last thing? Hot dogs, the Cubs. Yeah. I think that that, I think that covers it. One, I did get a message from Nick friend of the pod secret behind the scenes producer who responded actually to a question I raised about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Mm. And so this was in the thing about bologna (laughs) that actually, I think bologna and ketchup is probably the same as a hot dog. He sent me a podcast that asks that question. It was something about our, I don't remember if it was just hot dogs or hot dogs and hamburgers, sandwiches, something like that. I haven't listened to it yet because I'm kind of saving it. For when I fulfill my commitment to try the bologna and ketchup sandwich, but I will be circling back to that. So we have been talking off pod about, you know, trying to get together at some point. I really do think when we make that happen, we should consider a like um, food based, like a office taste test. Yes. Could include things like mung beans, the bologna and ketchup, but mm-hmm. as you said, chilies. I think we would have to have some Hooters food, especially after today's episode. have to go to Hooters for sure. I did look up the Hooters menu and was disappointed to find that the gourmet hot dog is not on their menu. Oh. Maybe oh. it was. Mm. In 2006, it isn't now. But the good, I mean, he's definitely showing some brand loyalty to Hooters. In this episode, I love it how he pronounces it Hooters. Hooters. <laughs> the food is catering is from Hooters. Uh, so he clearly is loyal to the chain. And so I think even if it's not his exact order or Jim's, that's okay. We also have another drink in here that I just wanted to throw out there that we should definitely add to the list and try. Mm. That is the one that Ryan orders for Kelly. Seven and seven with eight maraschino cherries, sugar on the rim, blended if you can. <laughs> I have to tell you when I heard that, I was like, yes, I want that. <laughs> I know. It sounds really good to me too. <laughs> So, okay, we need to start keeping track of these, uh, you know, um, yeah, drinks and food that we can test out. Uh, Yes. But with that, should we dive into the episode proper? Let's go. Let's do it. Uh, The summary? Yeah, you got it or am I doing it? I I got it. All right. Okay. When the branch hosts a charity casino night in the warehouse, the employees take some big gambles. Opening thoughts, Tyler. 
Um, okay. I, I don't even know. Okay. I think we're just going to have to go scene by scene, frankly. I know there's, there's so much stuff in here we want to talk about. Yeah. So I'd say, I agree. Let's take an orderly route this time. Yeah. Let's go scene by scene. I think I'll just say at the outset, I think, I think this is a brilliant episode. I think it might be one of the best. Hmm. And I, and it still made me feel things. And I really don't like yeah. that you're making me a fan of the office. I, Anyway, um, so, okay, opening scene. I thought this was an incredible cold open for a lot of reasons. It sets okay, up why? casino night. We have a really funny joke about him considering himself a philanderer. Um, uh, we have Dwight and Jim, or we have Dwight's tux. We got a great joke there about uh, the tux belonging to his grandfather. He was buried in it. And then, of course, the telekinetic powers thing. Mm-hmm. Cut to Pam revealing that she used the um, umbrella or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then the cut back to Dwight, you know, in shock or whatever. My only criticism of this opening is, and I every time I've seen it, I feel the same thing, which is Pam, when we cut back to Pam right before the final shot on Dwight, she winks at Jim. She winks and smiles. And I'm like, but Dwight is looking at her like every sh- everybody should be able to see that she just winked. Um, but it's so good. I don't care. So um, here's a yeah, here's a question I have for you about the the link. And this is the kind of thing where you'd really have to get out some string and some protractors and things like that. She winks. So Jim and Dwight are to her right side. Mm-hmm. Jim is like more toward the front. Dwight is kind of further back in her peripheral. Mm-hmm. So they're all toward the right. She winks with her left eye. Mm. I feel like it is possible that with the angle, Jim can see her left eye and Dwight cannot. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. That's my this theory. Is some, this is like a JFK, like, um, you know, was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll type? You know, I, I yes. feel like we need definitely a, to to rewind and map it out with trajectory. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I actually I should have mapped that out, but I thought about that. I love that wink. I actually want to be a it's person. A cute wink, before. like it's it is. Really into, it is very very charming. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it is very charming, very charming. But that is my that is my theory of how she winks and doesn't get caught in it. Um, I related to Dwight here. I feel like you're not going to want to go home and change. You know, you're not going to want to leave. And like, yeah. you're going to bring one outfit to work and then change into another one at night. No, no, no. You know, so I uh, yeah. felt I was, like he was making good choices. I was going to ask you about that as a strategy, because I think he's, other than maybe a couple people who don't change or who don't dress up for the casino night, I think he's the only one who comes in outfit. So Here's my question for you. Do you think that's the right approach? Do you come, and it sounds like you do, that you come in your night outfit rather than changing partway through? I think that I am, uh, as Stephanie has called me short-sighted, and and as I've said, lazy. So I think that I probably would take the Dwight route. Um, Yeah, and also what's the, you know, what what difference does it make? You're going to sit in your khaki button down shirt it's not like jeans and a t-shirt versus the tux so i don't know right it's not like one is actually really more comfortable and tyler what do we call that short-sighted or correctly sighted because you're anticipating the hassle of Mm. changing 
That's the true. other thing is that changing clothes later, and I'm assuming it's in the office bathroom is where you right. do it. Right. And then it's like your dress is maybe hitting the bathroom floor. And it's just, it's difficult to change clothes in that kind of situation. So have you yeah, ever I think, I think, that at work or something like had to change in your office or something? I hate doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I have. And I, I don't like it. So I would definitely just go ready for the night. The, so you, you mentioned Michael's opening thing and he's setting up, he's explaining the casino night and that it's for charity. So he says, I know it's illegal in Pennsylvania, but it's for charity. And I consider myself a great philanderer. <laughs> and as you know, that's one of my favorite kind of jokes. Is yes. He thinks he's saying one thing and he's saying another. And he wants to say that he's a philanthropist. But one thing I thought that was interesting about this is that both things he very much desires to be. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. Right? He wants to be a great philanthropist, but he also... I think has the d- desire, which he maybe has the desire to have the image of the philanderer more than to actually carry it out. I guess that sort of gets tested in that episode, but he seems like he, he loves, likes the idea of getting with a bunch of women yes, yes. casually. So it's, it was interesting. Like it's, it's like a Freudian slip, but in this case, it's to a word that he doesn't no. So it's like something that he desires in some way, but that he does not actually know how to name it in that vocabulary. Um, and it anticipates his double date problem. So, yes. so I thought that that was kind of nice too. Um, I think one, one of the reasons I do think this episode is smart and similar to we've, t- but we've talked about this before. I'm trying to remember, uh, greased weasel will remember for us, but, um, Basically, like we've talked about how the show sets up a, a, a typical sitcom conflict and then immediately resolves it. It's like, oh, not a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and I like it is a classic sitcom trope to be like, I'm having two dates at the same night oh, and yeah, I have to right. run between them and I have to. And I just so it's really clever that they set up here philander, like you're saying, and um, and then also we're going to flip it. Right. It's going to be like, actually, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> that he like these women immediately know yes. um yes. so i'm excited to talk about that but just a quick thing i can't remember you don't really watch it's always sunny in philadelphia do you i've seen a bunch of them oh okay have you seen the episode where charlie goes on a date um like he starts online dating and he goes on a date and they try and he's trying to pretend to be like you know not a janitor and so is you know mac and dennis tell him to pretend to be a philanthropist but he can't pronounce the word. And so he <laughs> says, I'm a full-on rapist. <laughs> and the woman is like, what? And he's like, uh, yeah, you know, and then eventually gets her. So when I heard the philanderer thing, I was like, oh, this reminds me of It's Always Sunny. I was like, Megan. I do like, not think I've seen that episode. <laughs> um, yeah, any thoughts on the uh, mind trick, the Jedi uh, mind trick thing going on here? I thought it was so good. I think Pam is probably our best imp- improviser. Yeah. In the office. I thought it was so creative that she uses the umbrella to move the coat rack and that she does it without Jim knowing that she's going to do it. It just so quickly comes to her. I think it's really cute in the little interview then where it cuts to her 
and she's just holding up the umbrella and she's silent, but it just shows the umbrella. Um, Wait a minute. I like that. You're saying, I thought they planned this out ahead of time. Really? Yeah. You're saying that she, he came up, he says, oh, I can move things. And she, on the spot, came up with the idea of the umbrella thing. I thought they had like pre-planned huh. it for some reason. It would probably make more sense if they had pre-planned it. I mean, what, it evidence, doesn't, what evidence do you have of pre-planning, Tyler? <laughs> I guess because I thought, well, he always does, because he's like, you know, creates these scenarios. So I was like, yeah. And how would she know to do it otherwise? But I like your, I mean, I like your reading that she's good at improv. Hmm. Um, but okay, I'm that Roy is standing there watching and she's winking yeah. at Jim. Yeah. So if it was planned, it's odd to do it in front of Roy. Yeah. I think. Let's go back here. Wait, I'm going to read the script, this part. And we can see. Okay, Roy. So what's the deal? We got to pay for our own drinks? That's lame. Pam, come on, it'll be fun. And besides, I'm a roulette expert. Dwight, impossible. Roulette is not a game of skill. It's a game of chance. And then Jim says, I can always kind of win at roulette. Dwight, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Jim, yeah. Dwight, how could you do that? Jim, mind control. Dwight laughs. You can't be serious. Are you serious? Jim, that ever since I was a little kid, like eight or nine, I could control things with my mind. So what do we think? Planned? I read it, I read it as planned, but I'm loving your your alternative <laughs> point of view. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, that might take a that might take a, a rewatch and reflect, but let me. Let me make my argument for yeah. unplanned. Sorry, sorry. I the I think the reason I read it as unplanned is because it feels like the staging would have to go so far back because it comes out of Pam saying she's good at roulette. And then Jim is responding to that because he says, I can, al I can always win at roulette. And it feels like there he's just trying to annoy Dwight because clearly to Dwight, this is so annoying to say that you can be good at roulette. And so then it felt like to me, he comes up with the mind control thing. And I always think about the time when it starts to move though. And I'm like, what? I think a place that we'd have to go. I think a piece of evidence we would have to go examine is Jim's eyes at that point. Mm. And I'm not sure that you can actually read this in a person's eyes. Is there... I felt like he he's so controlled in that moment. Like he's not showing surprise, but I wanted to see, was there that little tiny eye movement that suggests, oh, this is cool. Or, oh, this is fun that we planned this thing and it's succeeding. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, either way, you enjoyed this bit, right? Mm-hmm. So does that mean you liked a magic trick? Because... This okay. is kind of a magic trick, and I feel like I've just trapped you into saying that you liked it, and it is magic, so thoughts? This is a great question, <laughs> but is it magic when we know that it's not magic? Dwight does not know. Dwight, it's magic, and I will say I love <laughs> Dwight's shocked face <laughs> <laughs> when the coat rack moves dwight has a lot of good faces in this episode and seeing his shock was just wonderful i want to so, add 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I just have one more tiny thing I want to make sure we catch before we move beyond the scene. So Dwight in his grandfather's tuxedo has one of those vests underneath and he has a cell phone attached to the vest. And I, just, oh, I didn't <laughs> notice that. <laughs> that placement of the cell phone. Hilarious. <laughs> Man, I thought this episode was well shot, well edited, well written. I, yeah, I just thought it was all around mm-hmm. solid. Um, so then we transition into uh, the basically, you know, Michael inviting Jan, right? And and the unfolding of the question of who will be the um, charity for this event. And I will say just that the discussion of the charity is like maybe top tier office scene for me, especially the moment with Toby. Uh, it is like classic for me. Yes, yes. I loved this charity discussion scene too. Um, I love the fact that Michael is sitting up on Pam's high counter of her reception desk. And actually, it cannot have been easy to get up there. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, you... <laughs> it's a high, that, that part of the desk is high. So it, <laughs> like, did he, I almost want to see the cut scene of how he got up. <laughs> you know, would he need assistance? Would he just jump and hope to make it and maybe attempt a couple of times? I don't know. But yeah, he's kind of perched up there for this whole thing. She looks at him strangely at one point, and I thought it was, I couldn't, I didn't know if it was because he's sitting up there or if he, because he's like, oh, Pam, make a note of that or something. Like, I can't remember what he says, but uh-huh. um yeah, anyway, it was just funny. The whole placement of that scene is amazing. But you know my favorite moment in the whole episode is uh, Michael says kind of almost jubilantly, oh, and another fun thing, we at the end of the night are going to give the check to an actual group of Boy Scouts, right, Toby? <laughs> We're going to, and what I love there is like he actually is like for once sort of happy to say Toby's name and it amuses me. Oh, to good think point. Toby is the one who was supposed to like um make this happen or arrange it but anyway toby says actually i didn't think it was appropriate to invite children since it's you know there's gambling and alcohol and it's in our dangerous warehouse and it's a school night and you know hooters is catering you know is that enough should i keep going (laughs) and then michael says in probably the all-time best line so far why are you the way that you are (laughs) (laughs) Every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. (laughs) I have definitely thought in my head of some people, why are you the way that you are? I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. (laughs) So it is so good. Several things. I love that toby brings this long list yes. of reasons and he just keeps going and going about all of the reasons and michael's face just does not change he just has the most still face as toby's going through this whole list and then there's kind of a long pause before he asks why are you the way that you are yeah, yeah. Um, i just loved watching his face as he listens to Toby. 
this is going to be a boring podcast because it's just going to be me and you being like, and I like this and I like this and this was funny. Like, I don't have any brilliant social commentary or genre analysis other than I hope Pam and Jim end up together. I can't believe how manipulative this damn show is. Like, it gets me still. <laughs> but isn't, I mean, we could call it manipulative or we could call it persuasive. <laughs> and isn't all, all, narrative all rhetoric all writing isn't it on some level about manipulation when you're trying to convince people or you're trying to bring them along and so it's not necessarily a bad thing I would argue but I agree that this is an episode where <laughs> it is just going to be a lot of reading quotes into the record and talking about liking them such as Creed's love for the delicious pea soup uh, yes and he's gonna donate money creed gets some interesting stuff in this episode we discover that he likes to steal he's never had a fridge yeah and, uh, he may or may not be like homeless question mark i don't know yeah we learn we do we learn a lot about creed for sure we get <laughs> kelly there oh, kelly oh, God. So kelly this is when it goes to the interviews and people talk about what their charities of choice would be. I really like it also how it leads into this. So Michael says, tonight's event is to benefit the Boy Scouts of America. And Oscar says, again, we do that every year. Michael, well, they need our money. They don't have cookies like the Girl Scouts. Yeah. And Oscar, it'd be nice to do something for people who are actually suffering. And Kelly's <laughs> is just so perfect. She says, Kobe Bryant has a foundation and he is so hot. And he gave his wife the biggest diamond ring. I know he didn't do it. Maybe he did it. So the, gosh, I just love watching her, her thinking process and referring here um, to the sexual assault case. I just looked up the year. This was 2003 mm. um, with a 19 year old hotel worker. And mm. um, I just love how based on his hotness, Kelly so wants to side with him. And I just also really like how quickly she goes from the, I know he didn't do it to maybe he did it. Um, I don't know, just great Kelly. That joke still feels relevant to me To You know, the joke isn't about the sexual assault. It's about mm -hmm. how quickly, you know, people who, who fetishize celebrity would forgive something like that. Or, you know, even- yeah. Like, um yeah and the taking side the kind of taking yeah. sides right like yeah. loving loving kobe and so being on that side but then also thinking about it and being like no maybe the other side yeah um and within this michael said i don't i can't remember if this is the first time we hear this or not so you will have to remind me but i feel like you bring up this moment a lot where michael says there are certain topics that yes. are off limits to comedians. JFK, AIDS, the Holocaust. The Lincoln mm -hmm. assassination just recently became funny. I need to see this play like I need a hole in my head or a hole in the head. Man, it is rough rereading the script when they when it's like so anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, because their performances are so good. But anyway, he says, and I hope someday to live in a world where a person could tell a hilarious AIDS joke. <laughs> it's one of my dreams. <laughs> is that is this the first time we've heard that that line? Is that because I feel like you reference that frequently. I have definitely brought this up before because when we've talked about Michael's sort of theory of comedy and his ways yeah. of thinking about comedy and being a comedian and how to be publicly funny. And so I think that this example is 
just really interesting. I like it how he, <laughs> the thing with the, like his desire for an age, an AIDS joke kind of fits with his desire to be kind of edgy and, you know, the way the comedy kind of walk a line. I guess even like these things, like in the reference to the, the Kobe Bryant situation, right? Like they're also doing that and using humor and using references to things that are really serious and right. really heavy, but how do you do something funny with that, right? That's not making fun of victims or that's not making fun of people right. who suffered in this context or, you know, whatever the situation is. So I think it's just interesting as a way of thinking about comedy, the fact that, <laughs> the fact that he's so serious too, when he says it's one of my dreams, <laughs> the idea that that's the world he wishes to live in, that it has like the kind of distance from AIDS that it becomes funny. I noticed that he's willing to learn because when he says there are certain topics that are off limits to comedians, JFK, AIDS, the Holocaust. Oh gosh, where did I say this? Um, oh, it's because he, he stops somebody. And he says, no, no, AIDS is not funny. Believe me, I have tried. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I thought this demonstrated his learning and his growth that he has tried the AIDS joke, jokes and had, he, he has taken the feedback and he has responded. He still thinks that a better future is possible. And I wanted to ask, I guess, a couple of things. Is that a good dream for when AIDS jokes become funny? And does the timeline of the Lincoln assassination suggest that about 140 years need to pass before <laughs> something becomes funny. It would be, I actually would be curious if there were Lincoln assassination jokes, like right at the time of the assassination. You would just yeah. given how human beings work, you would think that would be the case. Um, yeah, so, totally. But, um, but, you know, this is why I think this is like really clever and interesting writing. It's like, on the one hand, that's an absurd desire, right? Like it's definitely born out of a kind of edginess and a desire to, right, you know, imagine yourself as the Bob Hope or whatever. On the other hand, there is something very sweet and earnest about the idea that yeah. this tragic thing would no longer exist and be experienced as tragic. So it would be possible to joke about it, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, which is different than saying, uh, I don't know, like we would forget about it or something like that. Like, I, I actually thought it was a pretty, I, I don't know. Yeah. Not, not ironic and not sweet, but but an interesting line. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, it's not the worst goal in the world. You got to have dreams, you know? Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. And we know that Kevin's is Scrantonicity. And what I found really interesting about Scramnicity is the way I, I'm very much on the the Megan train of, you know, how do how do the collision of these characters reveal certain things about them? And what I found so interesting about the Jim and Pam decision around the wedding bands is that Jim says, um, even if you don't hire a band, you have to, you still have to watch the bands, Pam. These are people who have never given up on their dreams. I have great respect for that. And yes, they're all probably very bad. And that will make me feel better about not having dreams. Yes. And I felt this was like a really important line in me a lot too. of ways. Yeah. What did you think about it? Well, go ahead. I wanted to hear what you thought. I, would, I just want to say it's, it, yeah, stood out to me as a really um, 
important, powerful line too. I mean, Jim doesn't really have dreams. Um, he is kind of a slacker in this way. And then on the other hand, he clearly does have a dream, which is to be with Pam as this episode will reveal. And so, yeah. um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting dodge, like as yeah. if he doesn't have desires, but it is also true that he has not really had professional goals or ambitions. And then on the other hand, Pam is somebody who has a dream, but has not pursued it in mm -hmm. any meaningful way. And yeah. so it's an interesting thing where part of what attracts, like, it sounds like implicitly what attracts Jim to Pam in part is her ambition, which mm. has not yet um, really um, fulfilled. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a interesting way to work in some character through, you know, a pretty funny and easy premise, which is she's getting married. They need to hire a band now. Let's look at videos. And, and lo and behold, Kevin is in one. He's the drummer singer. Yeah. Tyler, I love the way you're connecting that idea of a dream to different characters. And it's, it's making me think about our framing of the podcast too in the great American story. Yeah. It's just making me wonder about how the show as a whole might be read as a critique of the American, the sort of idea of the American dream. Mm. And oh, yeah, how that kind of plays out for different characters. Hmm. Well, with Jim, it was just such a revealing line. And it felt like one of those things that's a joke that has a lot of seriousness that underlies it about making himself feel better about not having dreams and the way that laughing, you know, being able to laugh at other people and being able to mock other people is a way of feeling better about ourselves. Right, right. And so it felt like something that was in the form, delivered in the form of humor and in the form of a joke, but that just also had a lot of seriousness and a lot of honesty and vulnerability in it, maybe. Yeah. And it, I really like the editing that um, they go off to watch the uh, the Kiss cover band or whatever. And they cut to Pam in her interview saying, I'm pretty happy these days. I'm getting married soon. And I'm getting along with everybody at work. And then they cut to him and he says, why did I talk to Jan about transferring? Well, you know, I have no future here. And yeah. I just love that kind of writing where, you know, you have two characters who, or at least one character who thinks justifiably interprets things one way but then we the yeah. audience know that they are misreading it or not that not that jim is deceiving her but that he is not revealing yet his whole feelings um yeah but i also thought I, for the very first time i was like oh, i'm doing what megan wanted me to do which is uh i was connecting this to the previous episode because she says i'm getting along with everybody at work and i was like oh right like that is a reference to her conflict with jim and so everybody actually means Jim. Um, and so anyway. That's and then good. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Because it was the last, it was at the end of the last episode where they were doing the group photo, right? And they were kind of talking, where Jim, Jim told her that he was the one who had made the comment. Right, right. Huh, such a good point. Related to that, another reference back to the previous episode, one thing that I thought was funny is that they slide the tape in that's labeled Scrantonicity. When Pam notices that it's Kevin, I thought, 
her acting and her face was so good showing the surprise but she had totally forgotten that Kevin had told her that he was in a band and it was yeah, that's right. in, the pre- in the previous episode. So I just thought it was really funny how that was, it was as if it was totally new information to her. Right. She had just not paid attention to him telling her that, um, or it had slipped her mind quickly. When they're watching the tape, Jim says your mom, or cause he's like, you should hire them all, do Lollapalooza. Have three, she says, have three stages. He says, your mom would love that. She would. And I was like, that is like, I don't know, that's really good writing as a way to demonstrate their intimacy and like, yeah, just the fact that he knows. I mean, I guess, you know, he knows that her mom would not like it. He's joking that she would. Um, but the fact that he knows yeah. what her mom does and does not like, and the fact that he is kind of teasingly addressing an issue that Pam probably has feelings about, right, which is pleasing her mother i mean it's very interesting that after jim reveals his feelings she calls her mother like yes you gotta discuss that that is right it's his, it's her mom right yeah it's her mom yeah um but then anyway after that it's kevin we cut to kevin and he says we really don't do a lot of weddings we don't play in public very often We're really hoping that pam's wedding work at, works out this could be a turning point for the band yes <laughs> so are we I, I was kind of curious what you made of that line. Like, are we meant to think that it's kind of pathetic or are we meant to find it sweet and charming? Is it cringy? Like what? Yeah. What's your take on this could be a turning point for the band? It's hmm. a good question. I don't know. I do feel like it's a little bit, I don't know. Sad, maybe that in life, if the kind of, I feel like for, maybe this is just too much about me, but you become an adult and you start working a lot and you kind of lose hobbies or like you lose yeah. extracurricular activities or yeah. you know, things that are just fun. Yeah. And uh, this comes from me being a person who was in a, <laughs> I'm sure from an objective perspective, a totally shitty band in high school, but that was really fun. They shouldn't have let me in it because I had no skill and really brought down the quality. But um, at some point, I think a lot of us stopped doing that kind of thing. And I know my guitar has been hanging on the wall doing nothing for many years. So there's something to me that seems really cool about the way that Kevin is so into it. And he's continuing with that. But you're right. At the same time, I mean, Jim is definitely... Jim is mocking it, but I think one of the ways the show maybe redirects us a little bit, as much as Jim and Pam are laughing at it, is that we know that it's fun to laugh at people who have dreams when you don't have dreams. Right, right. So it's kind of undercut their reasoning. It's like given a little bit of a critique of the mockery, I think. Yeah. Your take. That's really interesting. I, well, I was just thinking as you were talking about, okay, so one of my, have you ever seen Before Sunset? Mm-mm. Okay, so it's like one of my all-time favorite movies. And it's part of the, there's these three movies, each of them are about, okay, so the very first one is called Before Sunrise. And it's this couple that they meet each other on a train in Germany or something. And they they get off the train and they spend the day like, or in Austria, I don't know, whatever. But the, but the whole movie is just this these, this man and this woman flirting and talking and like you know discussing the state of the world or whatever 
um huh. before you know um and then at the end of the at the end of the night they're gonna go their separate ways or whatever and then the second movie is like 10 years later they reconnect and like what happens and then the third one is you know I won't spoil it but I really love these movies it's just people talking but there's a scene in before sunset that is about his he's talking about how he was like a drummer in a band when he was young and the lead singer like only ever talked about getting a record deal and it was all about the future like we got to do this and we got to do that and we have to take it seriously and all of that bigger shows or whatever and um but then he says like what he feels looking back is that rehearsing and playing shows was so much fun but yeah. at the time like he didn't enjoy it as much because it was like unless it's going to be a real band this is not like as if the rehearsing and the playing wasn't oh. in itself and that's always just resonated with me partly because I have difficulty enjoying uh things yeah. <laughs> and like difficulty enjoying the process and enjoying stuff that's just for the hell of it not for yeah. some purpose um so yeah I love so anyway what you're saying is like really resonates because I think it's kind of a beautiful philosophy of uh you know what it would mean to have more hobbies that are not for you know for some greater goal but I guess yeah. that's that's part of what's in, that's part of what is funny about Kevin's line is like if it's just a hobby and it's just for fun then the band doesn't really need a turning point yes um yeah so you know to what extent is he also somebody who's like oh we could be you know Pam's wedding could make us go big this is it this is our you know this is like playing you know Radio City or something. Uh, yes. Maybe that's a part of it where the, actually the dream aspect of it becomes kind of sad or kind of um, constraining because it does then put the focus on the future and on the thing to get to. And I guess the band dream is that you hit it big and you right, get famous right. instead of it being just the pleasure that it is to play right right I had a high school teacher I remember I was all stressed out in high school in my theater class and he was like Tyler you remember it's called play like we're supposed to be mm. playing at, you know and I was like huh and then I <laughs> did not learn that lesson for the next yeah. 20 years of my life <laughs> we're still working on that yeah um you know but, what you know, yeah go ahead sorry I was just gonna say it connects back to the grease weasel comment too about Dwight yeah Dwight is someone who is good at taking pleasure in and loving useless things yes like bobble or things that don't necessarily have that kind of gold like bobbleheads like he plays laser tag you know on what night does he play laser tag Thursday nights or something um Wednesdays I can't remember but <laughs> he's got a laser tag team so I feel like Dwight is has some of those enjoyable outside of work things actually as much as he is all about the job I think he also has some outside life but sorry I'm taking us into too much of a side where are we going to go well it's not a you know because we got to talk more about that but I was just going to say in response to what you said Dink and Flicka Dink and Flicka yeah I think you're really fleecing it out I <laughs> fleecing it out I <laughs> obviously love this <laughs> I knew you would I need your analysis <laughs> I mean this is a this feels like a super classic office moment so this is when it's in Michael's office and Michael and Daryl are arguing about the fire eaters that Michael has hired 
and Michael has put down a deposit to have fire heaters in the warehouse, which is insane. So um, a few things. I feel like I'm going to want to talk about this entire scene. Um, but so so Daryl says, or wait, let me let me see. Sorry, I, I got to get this up here because I copied some of it into my notes and I'm finding that it was not enough. Here, wait, I just got to. Just gotta get this here. Okay. So Michael says, I already put down the deposit. Do you understand how a deposit works? Daryl, Mike, I'm not having fire eaters in a paper warehouse. One thing I love, Daryl's the only person who calls him Mike. Yes. What do you think about that? I think it's just a it's a really interesting choice. And it yeah. definitely demonstrates a inversion of power dynamics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Mike, it also makes really? sense given that Michael and Daryl with the union episode, right? And the mm -hmm. men and women. And so yeah. there's, you know, I feel like Daryl has already asserted his, his, uh, I don't know, he's, he's capable of manipulating and outwitting. Yes. Uh, and um, anyway, I don't know. That's all I've got. What did you think? He is. Yeah. I, I think that's great. I didn't have, didn't have that much. Um, but I just, yeah, I think it's interesting. And you're right, the, the vibe of Mike is so different than Michael. Yeah. <laughs> it's casualness and it's formality. Um, so it is, on the one hand, a more, like a less, definitely a less deferential way of referring to him. And at the same time, we know how much Michael wants Daryl to like him. And so I could see him really liking being Mike to Daryl. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um michael continuing it's casino night like las vegas there are fire eaters all over the place <laughs> I don't know how much he wants it to be like las vegas <laughs> like dude the, the fire eaters are not your make or break here but anyway um he says there are fire eaters all over the place and daryl says accept my warehouse and michael well actually it's my warehouse dwight actually it's owned by beekman properties what <laughs> <laughs> is four years into a seven-year lease <laughs> I feel like they're kind of having this tension over um, property or kind of over their domain. But just the fact that Dwight takes it so literally about whose actual warehouse it is, great. I just, sorry, I'm like winding up to get to the Dinkinflicka. Um, so uh, Michael asks Dwight, why are you here? Dwight, when Daryl was coming, you said you wanted me here for protection. And then Michael gets very awkward about it. No, I said, not that. Daryl, we just have a lot of stuff down there that could be stolen. Michael, that's ironic. Daryl, what? Michael, that you're afraid. Daryl, why? Because I'm from the hood. And Michael says, dink and flicka. And Daryl sighs and says, dink and flicka. And then it cuts to his um, interview. And I'll <laughs> read that. And I want to talk about that too. Um, Daryl's face so Daryl does this look this kind of quick look at the camera at that point too when Michael says that and so we can kind of quickly see that there's a lot behind it I actually did a little bit of research on Dink and Flicka and the source so Dink and Flicka is an ambiguous expression with multiple meanings like shit happens that's life get over it which is just kind of a, an interesting, like Michael, I think he, uh, I think he uses it pretty well there. 
<laughs> um, but it says it's a phrase used when life doesn't go as planned or unfortunate events come your way. And it says that the source, the origin, um, a variation of the expression has been around since the 70s and was used mainly in Black communities. So um, when you search it, though, a, like a lot of it goes to this, goes to this episode as being a kind of big, very public mass culture use of the word. But I've been just setting up this scene for way too long. So why don't you jump in, Tyler? What did you think about this? Did you have thoughts? I'm just shocked that it's an actually real phrase. I thought it was made up. Yes. <laughs> that is insane. I don't even know what to think about that now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't I mean, this episode, it's interesting because this episode is bringing back some you know, dimensions of, I get not bringing back, but underscoring some dimensions of Michael Scott, the problematic white man who, yeah. you know, um, who, yeah, says stuff about Afghanis with AIDS. In this case, like he's making assumptions about, you know, black people and, and the quote unquote hood. And then yeah. later disabled people um, or people with disabilities. And mm -hmm. then, um, what else? Yeah, anyway, there's a lot of them in this episode where I was like, oh, they're really bringing back like or underscoring how he's how frustrating it is for people to be around him who, you know, are constantly like offended by his microaggressions, but can't say yeah. anything. So I just really enjoyed that Daryl's way of managing it has been to um, sort of lean into the <laughs> lean into Michael's desire to to be hip. And um, yes. And so yeah. to give him, you know, an insane handshake, <laughs> handshake. <laughs> things like that. Um, yes. I really want more Daryl. I really, I think it's crazy. He's not featured more or he, sh I feel like yeah. he should have a more central role. I know we don't go to the warehouse very much. It's called the office, not called the warehouse, but still. Yeah. He's, um, he is always really good though. Yeah. I think that's a good point about going back to the race stuff that we've had before and I felt like this episode does, like we talked about this being an episode that we think is a great Office episode. And I think it does bring together a lot of the things that the Office does, that it does well, and that are really interesting. And I think Michael is just this really great example of the way that um, like Black vernacular speech is something that is stigmatized but then also with that it becomes edgy and yeah is the cool and just how much of what kind of reads as cool as american cool comes from african-american culture right there's actually some interesting research i started looking this up a little bit but about the concept and kind of the sensibility of the cool and it being rooted in black culture and especially tied to the history of jazz I found a lot of things that it made me want to read. Mm -hmm. But I think especially, I mean, so much of so much of slang, so I'll say so much of what becomes mainstream and white usage of slang comes from African American vernacular mm -hmm. English. Um, and there are things like there are more I've been hearing more dropping the B, like dropping the to be verb. Mm -hmm. Um like, you know you good, we good, instead of we are good, that kind of thing. So those kinds of patterns that are part of that grammar 
um, getting into, like they're always kind of getting pulled into the mainstream, getting used by white people and then taking on a whole different diluted and often problematic form that we see with Michael. So I felt like he was just a really good demonstration of that. And you use the word manage the way that Michael or the way that um, Daryl manages him and manages that. I just felt like that was so good. I want to read what he says in the interview. He says, um, <laughs> he says, I, I taught Mike some uh, phrases to help him with his interracial conversations. You know, stuff like fleece it out, going Mach 5, dink and flick up, you know, things us Negroes say. And I'll say that his face also changes through that. So when he says that last line, you can see like there's, you can see the, um, the hurt that there is in that. At other points, he, he's kind of the, the sort of speaking where you're like almost bursting out laughing a little bit. So the way that it combines that humor and pain but as a way of then turning it on Michael so that Michael is totally embarrassing himself yeah without realizing it and it's like it's almost creating more opportunities then for Daryl to be laughing at him and to be mocking him without Michael knowing what's going on <laughs> um, and so I just thought that was a really really fascinating and really kind of powerful example of a strategy for dealing with white people. Yeah, I love, I mean, everything you're saying, I think is just so smart and, and true. And um, yeah, and the performance there is just so good too. Yeah. So then after that, we get um, the phone calls uh, with Carol and with Jan. And uh, there's not much I have to say about this other than, um, uh, I thought Michael's line always makes me laugh or did make me laugh. Two queens on casino night. I'm going to drop a deuce on everybody. <laughs> and uh, but then also Pam's strategy. Um, it made me think, oh, she's a good receptionist because she doesn't put Michael through until he's already said something. I look at this as a practice run for him. He usually does better on the second attempt. So I thought first, that's really interesting, like as a strategy for a receptionist. But yes. then. I also thought, why would she want to make him do better? Why would she want, why does everybody enable him? Um, but, you know, maybe she's a good person or whatever. But then I was wondering, why does he do better on the second attempt? I really like the way Steve Carell played it. Like, because mm -hmm. it was clearly better and just more like, oh, hey, what's up? And you Much could see normal. why he would be charming and, and normal if, or charming if he acted a little more um, easygoing and mellow. Um, yeah. So anyway, I thought that was kind of a, an interesting little revelation of Pam's. Yes, strategies. yes, definitely. That was my that was my favorite part of this scene, too. So for example, when he his first try on Carol is, "Hey Carol, how's the real estate biz? Is it real good?" <laughs> and then Pam comes in. It's still me and. Uh, so then once Pam puts him through the second time, he just says, hi, Carol, how you doing? And then with Jan, when Jan calls and his first attempt is Jan Levinson, I presume. And then Jan, hi, hi Jan, how you doing? So <laughs> I just thought the, um, <laughs> I really liked hearing, I just really liked the writing in here of 
both the original lines he tries out and then how just quickly he simplifies it and normalizes after the first attempt. Um, one little thing I wanted to note, I don't know quite to, what to make of it, but some echoing in speech. So he says to Carol, incidentally, I love the place. And I thought incidentally is just not that common of a word used in speech. Mm. And Jan then says, incidentally, what charity is it? <gasps> so I wondered about, there's gotta be some word for that. Like You are so smart. Holy crap. <laughs> no, I'm not. This is so idiotic. But I wonder if there's some term for like language bleed or something. Bleed just sounds like a disgusting yeah. word for it. But you know where it like kind of permeates from yeah. one place to another. Yeah. And you pick up things, like you pick up words from people you're with. So I just, I thought it was really interesting that use of incidentally. And we see a similar thing happen with Carol where I'll say too that Jan hadn't heard him say that. He had said that to Carol which made me think, I, I wondered if it was a word that Michael had picked up from Jan, like if it's a kind of Jan type of word. But when Michael talks to Carol, he says, no problemo. And then she, when she comes back on the phone to accept his invitation to casino night says, no problemo. So it was just a detail that I found striking. You are, I, I feel like uh, a novice, <laughs> like I didn't even watch it. That's so brilliant. <laughs> Um, love that point. <laughs> well, where do we go next? Okay, so I think we got to go to Casino Night proper. Um, yeah, it's amazing how long it's taken us, you know, I, to Casino Night to get to the actual Casino Night. But let's go. It's just, yeah, it there's just so much though. But um, I'll just say by way of transition, uh, welcome in. Bienvenue and welcome to Monte Carlo. <laughs> I am no longer your boss. Lady Fortune is your boss. <laughs> <laughs> will Lady Fortune be your mistress? Only time will tell, my friends. Leave all your preconceived notions about casinos at the door. <laughs> what preconceived notion? Anyway, old friends, new lovers, and the disabled. Welcome all. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just makes me laugh uh, how badly, you know, he wants to be, you know, he does not want to be a boss. He wants to be, a, he wants to be Jimmy Fallon or something like that. And uh, yeah. I just love Stanley being like, well, Lady Fortune, give me a raise. Um, <laughs> so there's tons of moments here that are all great. You know, there's uh, uh, one of my favorites is Kevin losing to Phyllis. <laughs> And we discover that Kevin is like a world poker champion and then cut back mm -hmm. and he's like, I suck. Uh, I mentioned Creed um, just saying that he gave up, he stopped caring a long time ago <laughs> and he enjoys stealing. Amazing. The scene we have, of course, Michael Luke going all in on the first hand <laughs> and losing to Toby as if he's in a movie and, uh, and like <laughs> Toby feeling alive. He's like, I'm going to chase that feeling. <laughs> Um, we have, uh, uh, oh, the scene with Billy, I guess. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who Billy is. Uh, he's the building manager. Oh, that's right. And he met his girlfriend at Chili's and Michael says yes. Chili's is great. Um, those After are Michael has assumed that she was his nurse. Yes. Oh God. Um, <laughs> so lots of great moments, but you know, the plot wise, it really is this kind of like oh uh michael's on a date sort of with two different women mm -hmm. 
But what I love, and I mentioned this earlier, is just how quickly they're like, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong. It's fine. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and they're both clearly like a little eyeing each other, but it's not like a conventional sitcom would be, you know, so zany. And they try and they hint at all of that with Dwight trying to manage between them and then doing terribly. Um, yes. So, you're right. Because I, you know. I did not think about that, but you're so right that in the standard format, the entire the whole episode would be the, you know, kind of dodging back and forth between them. And then what would it be? Like it would come together and maybe they would figure it out almost at the end or at the end, right? But here right. it's like, it just takes that, it takes all of that kind of tension out of it when they just run into each other immediately. And it's also, interesting. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just, just one. Dwight's coding for jazz man <laughs> Yeah. And codename Remax is just funny. Code That's all. Yeah. Um I just it was an interesting thing though to have Michael suddenly be a desirable uh, yeah. And I was curious what you thought about that twist of events, which is unusual, yeah. I think. Hmm. Um, and then also the fact that he seems to choose Carol like pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I found that int- I found that surprising, actually, because you would think I would have thought he would have picked Jan out of, um, you know, their previous time that they hooked up or whatever. So, yeah, I was curious what you made of that. Yeah. Huh. You're right. He definitely he has become an object of desire in this episode. He does look nice in that tux. I think. Do you agree? Is this hot, Michael? I thought he looked good. He looks good. I did. Jan, what? I said, yeah, I did think yeah, he looked good. Yeah, heard that. So I was noticing how Jan and Carol are sort of similar looking and presented, I think, in ways that are to emphasize the parallels. So like when they're both Definitely. standing in the bar and waiting for a drink. But their blonde hair, it's parted in the same way, but I think going opposite directions. And it just felt like, particularly in that scene, there's a kind of visual doubling of them along with the more doubling, doubling. Um, but yeah, I think they do they do a good job to just showing the sort of subtle tension that there is between them. And <laughs> I feel like Carol had a good line that I thought was sort of mildly passive aggressive when she says something about two and a half hours that's a long drive Mm. (laughs) so there were kind of mild 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 aggressions I will say there or the awkwardness um but I lost the thread of where I was trying to go Speaking of the awkwardness is uh, I love Dwight asking Jan where she's staying. Motel 6, Best Western, Holiday Inn, The Hyatt, and Wilkes-Barre. He's staying with Michael. Like, um, (laughs) she just doesn't know how to play it cool. But yeah, no, I just, it was just an interesting thing to see Michael from their perspectives. Like, there's somebody who's driven all this way and she's clearly like, I don't know, you just get the vibe that Jan's maybe like a workaholic or that she's super stressed out i don't know why i actually have that impression but um but she doesn't she say something like oh i've been needing to have fun and i haven't relaxed yeah. And all this yeah and um yeah and then his conversation with carol too it's like 
here's this person. He's he was nice to her kids. He played with them in the skating rink. See, I'm remembering episodes now. Yes. At the birthday party. And then he's um, yeah, I don't you know, he's trying to be whimsical and creating something fun and different in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And so I don't know. I actually thought the episode showed from their point of view why he might be. Yeah. Potentially attractive. Yes. Um, yeah, which was interesting to me. Uh, but I think I don't know you're, why. you're so right to go back to that Carol at the skating rink because, yeah, that's when he pulls. He has the kids go on his like hang out to his hockey stick and he skates and pulls them and he is so fun and so sweet in that scene. And I would think that as a single mom, somebody who's nice to your kids, that seems pretty irresistible. Totally. In that scene that you mentioned, it was interesting. Okay, so Jan drinks a Cosmo and Carol wants red wine. She points out the two hours thing. Jan's response is, it's part of my job. Keep an eye on things. So why not? How long have you and Michael been? She says, well, actually, this would be our first date. Which I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. Jan says, casino night in the warehouse. Good sport. She says, well, I'm having a nice time. I love Jan's response. She's like, oh, me too. Me too. And I was like, I definitely feel like I've been in passive aggressive, awkward (laughs) conversations like this but there's uh-huh. also it feels to me like this scene is a really interesting uh kind of gender moment where you have yeah. two women who like are express on the surface are expressing cordial um cat you know uh, i don't know yeah yeah or so i don't know they're being congenial but yeah. the subtext is basically like <laughs> you know pretty pretty um pretty aggressive i don't know i thought it was an interesting yeah scene yeah totally makes me think the connections they're both women with careers yeah you know in business and in real estate i haven't thought about this but you pointed out the fact that michael seems to choose carol and i wonder about the fact that she's so like they're both um successful women they're fairly similar in appearance but jan is Jan has got kind of New York coolness and Carol has the Scranton, the Scranton-ness as well as kids and as well as the promise of a family in a different way. Mm. And so I wonder if, um, if that contributes to making her potentially more attractive. That's a really interesting point. Well, this is paralleled with our other plot, which I don't think I don't. Okay, so it's the last season or it's the last episode of the season. So the last episode of a season is a showstopper, right? You know, it's like there's going to be a wedding or a death or, a you know, some climactic event or whatever. Of course, you know, the show has been teasing a will they won't they. But frankly, there is not a ton in the episode preceding their kiss or rather Jim's um, confession of his love and then his kiss that would lead that would have led me to believe oh, this is the episode where he's finally going to tell her. It's so understated. Yeah. And yeah. um, and there's essentially no plot between them other than she says, oh, you know, I'm not stressed out when I'm planning my wedding with him, but there's no tension, no conflict. And yes, he says, I'm thinking about leaving because I have no future here, but it's not, it, like the episode doesn't begin with that. And so it's really interesting. Like as it goes on, I kept remember, I was like, oh, right, they kiss here. But so it's really Jan that prompts Jim because prior to this, I think uh-huh. 
Pam is, um, whoever the actress is, incredible in this episode. Like, I think her performance yeah. is great. They have this flirty conversation or whatever when they're playing poker and he loses to her. Jim goes outside, Jan's smoking. Mm. Um, he asks, why did you hook up with her? Which I thought was a really interesting. Yeah. His, his acting there was pretty good. The writing was yes. good. But anyway, she's like, if you give him more thought to it, he says, yeah. She says, good. Have you told anyone? No. Well, you should. And then the very next thing is oh, that he wow. goes to tell Pam, but he's not telling her, I'm thinking of transferring, <laughs> but he's saying, I'm I'm in love with you. And um, so it's just interesting to me that Pam or that Jan outside smoking and feeling dejected about her um, sort of failed intimacy and perhaps shameful intimacy for her with Michael is the thing that provokes him to do this thought. Taylor, you just, that blew my mind. I have never made that connection. Whoa. So Jan is like the pivotal person <laughs> showing up here. In some That's ways, so right? Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know that he would have felt the need there's nothing before this that really shows him suffering. Like, I need to tell yeah. him today's the day. Yeah, because he needed a bigger, like, there needed to be something to push him or something to change things. They had one of the things that reminded me, actually, of the fight episode. You know, in the fight episode, when he kind of grabs her and picks her up and her shirt starts to come up? Yeah. That, I was reminded of that when they're, gosh, is it that she's, Starting, he's starting to go out with the video. Is it that right. he's going to go say something to Kevin? I, I don't remember why he's leaving the um, conference room, but she goes to grab him and pull him back. And so there's yeah. this physical intensity that it gets to with their interaction. Yeah. But man, you're right. Jam there. That's big. I don't know what we're, how, like, how are we going to talk about this next moment? Because I feel like we need an entire podcast to process. <laughs> what Jim says, Pam's reaction, and then the second scene after it. But should we try? Let's try. Okay. And if we return, we return. <laughs> I Well, I'll just say, I'll say my initial thoughts. I want to hear, I really want to hear your take on all of this because okay. I don't know what to think about it. But um, Roy leaves, tells Jim to keep an eye on her. Um, they flirt a little. She's like in a really good mood. I took all your money. He says, hey, can I talk to you about something? Um, and I know that we're, are we in the parking lot or are we in the, in the road? Like, are they on the sidewalk outside of the parking lot? I can't remember. But, they're, they're in the parking lot, kind of at the corner, like the front corner. I just think it's interesting the role the parking lot plays in this show and like yes. significant events, but especially. In the Chili's. Yeah. The parking lot seems to be a, you're right. <gasps> the Chili's kiss i forgot Chili's, michael and jan kiss yeah there's there's something about park parking lots do some there's something about the space of the parking lot that uh it's, makes things different it seems to be like partly that it's a, it's a well maybe it's nondescript and it's liminal right like nobody stays mm -hmm. in the parking lot but also it seems to always be a space of heightened emotionality like i don't know why it doesn't the the office inside is the place of like routine and boredom and the parking yeah. lot seems to be a place of like emotional consequence and drama but yeah. anyway she says do you did you want to do that now we can go inside i'm kind of feeling good tonight and he says i was just i'm in love with you 
I'm really sorry if that's weird for you to hear, but I needed you to hear it. Probably not good timing. I know that. She says, what are you doing? Mm. What do you expect me to say to that? I just needed you to know once. Well, I am, um, I, I can't. Yeah, you have no idea. Don't do that. What your friendship means to me. Come on, I don't want to do that. I want to be more than that, which I was, anyway, I, like, there's so much to say about this. I can't, I'm really sorry if you misinterpreted things. It's probably my fault. Not your fault. I'm sorry I misinterpreted our friendship. Yeah, he's got, he's got a tone and I'm sorry I misinterpreted our friendship. Yeah. Well, okay, so I don't even know what to say, man. This scene really gets to me. Like mm. it really wow. gets like in to what me. way? Um, I don't know, because I've definitely been in love with people that either weren't in love with me or that said that they couldn't, they didn't you know, want to be with me or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so there's that. Um, <laughs> but also, I think it's just, it's really hard to, I don't know if you, yeah, I think it's difficult to tell people what you really feel about them. Yes. Find the moment is really difficult. And when you find yourself in that moment, like, like I feel for both of them, right? She's completely caught off guard and and he is mustering this courage to say something. And it's definitely bad timing, but there is no good timing. On yeah. the other hand, like this brings me back to the question that I've long been asking you, which is what does Pam know? And when did she know it? But when, <laughs> but when she says, what are you doing? It says to, it says to me that mm. she knows and knew but is basically oh, yes. like, we can't do this. So you are yes. breaking the silence of the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. What yes. do you expect me to say to that? Jim says, I just needed you to know once. So his belief is that she does not know, hmm. which I can't understand how she can't know. But then when she says what your friendship means to me, I'm like, is she trying? Anyway, I don't mean to keep close reading this, but please do. But it also breaks my heart. Like when he's, when, when the way he says, don't do that, I don't want to do that. Um, because he knows she's letting him down. I don't know. This feels like very much a bachelor moment. I feel like I'm <laughs> in the bachelorette. We see these moments a lot and it's really cringy to watch somebody be reject. Like the imbalance of desire is, is yeah. for some reason. And yes. I don't know why that would be. Why would we want reciprocity? We, I guess maybe we want characters to get what they want, but we assume, or I guess in this sense, like I'm assuming that Pam does want Jim. She just can't admit it to herself or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think that un, unevenness of desire and of vulnerability. So I think you're so right about that. The sort of strangeness of that. What are you doing? line and it, it does feel like he, he is puncturing the silence you've talked a lot about a kind of silence within the straight relationship as the sort of true. Thing, like right yeah. there being this set of things that go unspoken and he's breaking that unspoken rule and it feels like I, I really like it when he stops her when she's saying that you have no idea what your friendship means to me and I think he's kind of calling it that like that's kind of a bullshit response that does not really respond like I, I know you like our friendship like let's don't don't waste my don't waste my time with this because it seems like she's trying to stay on that surface yeah he's broken it I think so why I think that there she's trying to maintain the surface why does she okay she wants to be with Jim 
but she can't accept it or can't the consequences of it are too much yeah I think the consequences of it are too destabilizing probably yeah I get that I mean it's gonna rupture her whole yeah yeah it's it would be really complicated and she's not somebody who is good with conflict or change Mm -hmm. she doesn't push Roy yeah to to meet her needs in any meaningful way yeah Um, but is it unfair of her to to say you know I want to be friends probably not unfair I mean she right like she she has every right even even though we're maybe kind of rooting for Jim here she has every right to turn him down yeah and, and I think also if she does her plan at this point is to go ahead and marry Roy she can't like she'll she'll be creating more problems if she actually gives a more vulnerable answer to Jim so I think it makes right. sense I think there's something that is um very reasonable about her response but I think we see it really like the the rupture has happened because even if she has in some sense known it it is very different once it's spoken and once it's released and out there kind of like the complaints that are in the complaint box Mm. and they're able to just kind of sit there until they start coming out and things explode so like the gym desire has been contained to an extent but here, when it's spoken because she goes in That's she calls her mom yeah and she's clearly very shaken up it's one thing i kind of wanted to ask you about is the why are all the lights not on like there are all of these little lamps that are on yeah a lot of effort to go turn them all on like do they leave some low light for security purposes it just seems like when you go into a place at night you flip one switch but darkness also seems important for this kind of thing to happen you know like you're not under the sterile bright lights of the office Mm. that night has to fall for certain things to happen um, that's a great point but yeah it was just it was an interesting and strange kind of lighting although I find that in tv it, this always kind of bothers me a little bit but every time you're at an office at night on tv they don't have big lights on it's always this very low light situation that doesn't feel realistic but that's fine <laughs> but she goes in and her talk with her mom her mom asks her something so we don't hear what um we don't hear what her mom is saying so it's all Pam's side but she's telling her mom about it she's just clearly really shaken up and upset about 10 minutes ago no I didn't know what to say yes I know um I don't know mom he's my best friend yeah he's great yeah I think I am and so all we can do is kind of guess filling in what her mom is saying. First, I'll say I appreciate her mom here because I think her mom really is trying to help Pam figure out what she does feel and what she does want. And I think she's probably just really conflicted because I don't think she doesn't love Roy. I don't think that she doesn't want to be with Roy entirely. I think he's disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, But I kind of thought, so like her mom, when Pam says, yeah, he's great, she's not just saying he's great. She's saying 
yeah. So like her mom has been saying, yeah, Jim, yeah, Jim is pretty great. And when Pam says, yeah, I think I am. Don't you think her mom asked her, do you think you're in love with him too? Yes, of course. <laughs> I was trying to think what she could have asked that wouldn't be that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's gotta be that. And Jim comes in and there is the kiss and then it just cuts off. This is a weird ending for the office. Well, let's talk about the kiss uh, and then we'll zoom out. But yeah, thoughts on the kiss. Mm. I don't know. I feel like I got nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So first I'll say, um, I love your point about the lighting. I think it's so um, smart. It also just reminds me when I lived in Philadelphia, you know, they have all these big office buildings. Um, it always drove me nuts. You know, you would see just so much impoverishment and, and uh, you know, homeless people and, then you would see these like massive buildings empty at night and mm -hmm. then all the lights were on, you know, and I was just, I would always think about like the amount of electricity and warmth in those spaces, you know, and then anyway. Um, so yeah. I, I think you're right that like, this is definitely a conceit of the show to create a moody romantic moment. And, um, and I think that it's the right choice. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting choice though, that it's in the office, not, in the warehouse it's not in the parking lot it's not in a car it's not at her front door it's at and her it, receptionist desk it's a gym's desk oh it's a gym's desk she Wait. does not call from her reception desk she she's his phone desk. yes Ugh. fascinating you know she's like leaning back on it yeah she uses jim's desk oh my god i don't know what that means but it seems significant anyway yeah. um so just other than that it's like a, a using this thing that he puts to his face and his mouth every day Ooh, and yes. this physical intimacy um so yeah i i don't know oh and also i feel like an idiot you know be asking like oh is it fair for pam to say this or is it fair for jim to say this it's like obviously it's written to make us want them to be together right and yeah. so yeah. it's designed to frustrate us and to you know, make us desire or whatever. And I just think it's great. It's great writing. It's like a will they, won't they. Yeah. It's very successful because it is so understated, but yeah. it also is contrasted. I cannot believe I didn't realize this until now, but it's intercut with Michael talking about a love triangle. Um, mm. and like that is what this is, right? It's Pam, Jim and Roy. It's a oh, real love yeah. triangle. Michael has like a fake love triangle with him and, and Jan and Carol, but like, oh, wow. yeah, this is a real one. And Roy is there in the very first scene. Roy is there in the second to last scene. Um, and so it's it's a really nice way that the show is kind of like here would here's the sitcom version. And then here is our kind of office understated real docu realism version of yes. triangle. And oh, that's uh, a good connection. When she says to her mom, he's my best friend. It does not read to me in the way that it does when she says it to him. Yeah. Like, it reads more like how people these days, for better or worse, say, I married my best friend or I'm looking mm -hmm. for my best friend, which I'm always yeah. like, why? Uh, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah, why, is, why do you need your partner to be like everything? But whatever. <laughs> um, like your best friend, you know, the perfect lover, you know, like really good at doing taxes uh and like you know um 
agrees with you on the 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 temperature of the house and <laughs> totally also nice. you don't mind like you're supposed to like sleeping like it's we bundle all these expectations for one person but whatever um anyway oh but about the kiss i guess okay i can't believe i don't mean to be like the uh annoying uh person but she has just said to him like not interested thanks he mm. comes in and like comes on in and kisses her mm -hmm. i mean it looks very consensual to me but i was just kind of curious i just for the sake of argument uh -huh. you know how do we feel ab about the physics of the kiss and the way that she oh. sort of um i don't know just if you had oh that's a too sensitive to consent <laughs> not that one can be too sensitive but right right that's a good physics of the kiss that that question the physics of it brilliant that's super interesting because it does feel like something that um is asked something that we ask now that is different than the conversation yeah, that's a good when point in, right when it comes out right right um, right right i whew, yeah it and now I, I feel like I have to go back and look kind of frame by frame. Now I really want to calculate like, you know, to what extent, who is leaning in and in what way. But I think Pam is all for this. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's also, I mean, it's a very heteronormative mode too, where it's like kind of the man is supposed to be, you know, the, the one who makes the move and then she kind of leans into it. or yes. Like she's definitely here for it um yeah what was it is it that he is it that he knows like i'm wondering from wondering what he walks away with like for when they talk in the parking lot because i guess a big part of what matters is not only is she on board with this but what does he think that he is doing right. so you know does he when he walks away from that conversation does he think it's a definite no or does he think she really does want this. And I've kind of punctured the silence by saying it, but now I need to puncture another level by breaking the physical barrier. With my tongue. That's just like another way of potentially opening it up. Or, I mean, he also could just be- Also, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, okay, good one. Um, I feel like we should do that much more often in these conversations. We should. We should. He, I guess another potential way he could be is kind of angry and frustrated and coming back in anger and frustration which would make this more problematic um but yeah unless, there's a lot potentially going on sorry yeah well just unless because he is like slightly as you said not passive aggressive but like he's 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 being snippy when he's like sorry i misinterpreted our friendship or whatever mm -hmm. um i mean i do think okay so on the one hand this is the problem of heterosexuality in its normative form, um, which is to say that, like, women are not allowed to be sexual beings, for mm -hmm. the most part, right? Like, women can't say, I want this, I desire this, or else they will be shamed and stigmatized, like, for it, right? And meanwhile, like, men are told, straight men are told, like, you have to be the aggressor, you have to do all this, you know, because, uh, you know, she doesn't know what she wants or she doesn't know what she needs and you have to be the one to like provide that or some shit or whatever mm -hmm. but then also like you know if in this culture of silence 
nobody can really ask or trust that they mean what they say, which creates, I think, one, you know, one horrific situation when it yeah. comes to things like consent, right? Like if you don't, anyway. Yeah. So, um, so it's just like, I'm, that's in the back of my mind um, mm -hmm. in terms of like, what does she know and what does she actually feel? Yeah. But I love your question about like, what is he feeling when he comes in? Because you could imagine him feeling aggressive or not aggressive, but sort of more, even more determined. Yeah. Which is yeah. a form of aggression, but certainly like, I will show you that this is real or something like yeah. that. But yeah. at the same time, we don't know what she's thinking because she says, listen, Jim. And I suppose like one reading of that would be, listen, here's, you know, this is why it could never work between us or something like that, you know. But on the other hand, there is the equal possibility that she's going to say, listen, Jim, I also am in love with you or I'm here for this. Yeah. Or, wow. Um, so I don't I don't know. And but he it, doesn't listen like that's that's actually such an interesting line that that's the line right before listen yeah, Jim. yeah. And what he does is not listen it uh, reminds me though of the moment in Chili's because you yeah. said at that point that we don't know what she was going to say but it's like charged with potential meaning when they were in the Chili's parking lot and she says um I have a question and then the moment passes Angela's car drives up or something and she doesn't end up asking it so we again have this kind of hole in the text almost where we we still don't know so in some ways we've gotten the thing that we've wanted or we've gotten the thing that the narrative has led us to desire and yet it has not given us the key bit of information like the key line remains unspoken and your point so the connection i love the connection that you made to michael the way that it's cut back with michael's interview when he says love triangle drama all worked out in the end though the hero got the girl who saw that coming i did he's talking about himself but like you pointed out he could totally be talking about this situation but we don't know if the hero got the girl mm. just i don't know or if she got the boy um she got the boy okay but what about the fact that she calls her mother like i don't know man i don't know how i feel about that i don't mean to mom shame but Pam it's, loves her mom. You're right. We learned that on sexual harassment episode. You're right. You're right. She's very close to her mom. But please elaborate. I did not mean to cut you off. I want to hear. I want to hear your argument against Pam's mom. Uh, you're not going to cancel me today. <laughs> um, Anti-mom stance. Come on, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, will there be a Mother's Day episode? <laughs> we can talk about moms there. Um, I don't know. It just is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's <laughs> it positions her as it reminds us that she is like a child. You know, it feels infantilizing oh, yeah, to me. Uh -huh. Feels somehow infantilizing. This kind of like I need to go call my mom to figure out how I feel or how to process this. I mean, yeah. on the one hand, to defend that choice narratively would be to say actually Jim is her best friend. He's the only person. That, he, mm. that she can talk about difficult things with. She says like she yeah. doesn't go to Roy for her thoughts or feelings. Yes. Apparently has no other friends except for Jim. And therefore, if she can't talk to Jim, then who else could she call? And the mother stresses that, right? Like, yeah. That, um, on the other hand, I guess, yeah, there's this part of me that was like, 
you know, call a girlfriend or, or, you know, some other friend uh, that's a guy or whatever, you know, just call somebody or call nobody. Yeah. I don't know. Like, but I guess that's her, right? Like that is her character is that she is somewhat indecisive and passive. I guess that makes me uncomfortable slightly given that those are traditionally gendered as feminine. Although Jim has also been passive up to this point as well. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I I really like this moment. Mm -hmm. I find it very um, provocative as an ending to uh, a season of television because it's just like, boom, like, yeah, there's the kiss, but it's not clear in any way how this would change things or or what could possibly like I, I don't know to me that's what great suspense is right is like it ruptures some stability without a clear sense of how it could possibly be resolved and that's maybe yeah. why it's important that she says you know I can't do this blah 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 it really intensifies the idea that like no this will produce a radical change yeah yeah hmm. well I guess we've got a lot to look forward to in season three. Is it time for Dundies? I think it's Dundee time, Tyler. All right. Okay. I think I'm going to surprise you with my Dundee. Oh, yeah? All right. Let's hear it. All right. My Dundee for professionalism goes to Jan Levinson Gould. uh, (laughs) Nice. Just Jan Jan Levinson. (laughs) Uh, I think it is it is really professional of Jan to be like, nope, you didn't do anything wrong. And while, yeah, she's obviously a little, uh, you know, um, I don't know, whatever. She's having some feelings about Carol situation. I think she acts like a total professional. She praises Michael about the good job that he did. She does not make it awkward. And I was like, wow, that is a level of maturity and professionalism that I probably wouldn't have. So good for you, Jan. Great. Oh, and yeah. my argument it is she makes the gym and Pam possible. So totally. That's yeah. great. She's she's well deserving of an award. So Tyler, last week you gave out the emotional honesty award. And this week I'm gonna give out the same award. The emotional honesty award goes to Jim for obvious reasons. Jim's vulnerability. He's like you said, this is actually a good pair of dundies because Jan was pivotal in making this happen. And he just goes totally honest and continues to be honest in response to her response. So one to Jim. I also actually want to give honorable mention to Roy for surprising kindness. And that is to Kevin, because Kevin, who has won a poker championship, he's there wearing, I didn't know that these existed, but the Poker World Series bracelet He's got that bracelet. When he gets defeated by Phyllis, he is so dejected. But Roy goes up and tells him that his band, Scrantonicity, really rocks and he's going to hire him for the wedding. And it just turns things around for Kevin. So I think Pam, or no, I'm sorry, Jan is to the gym situation as Roy is to Kevin making big things happen. Wow. Even though Roy is like, oh, who cares what Pam wants? my pick yeah i'm yeah, this is a controversial dundee choice but it's really just specifically for his kindness to kevin and perhaps i should clarify that winning an award does not make you a completely good person fair enough good point a complicated human as roy certainly does well uh so when we see everybody next time is it going to be for our season recap or is it going to be for episode one season three what do you think 
I think it's going to be something season two based. Season two. All right. Well, yeah. we will see you all next time uh, for our overarching thoughts on season two. Thanks so much for your messages. Keep sending them. And thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.